Hey folks, thanks so much for joining us on the very first episode of the In Search podcast. Our conversation today centers around adolescent sexuality in Ghana and touches upon issues of transactional relationships, sexual debut, and love. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to my podcast. Today, I'm so excited uh, to have this conversation with my esteemed colleague, Madeline Henderson. Um, I'm so excited for her to tell you all about her research. Uh, But before I actually get into the meat of it, I'm going to ask her to tell us a little bit about herself. Hello, Maddie. Hey, Golshan. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for joining me. It means a lot to me that you're here uh, joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. Can you tell uh, our dear listeners here a little bit about yourself? Yes, absolutely. So I am doing a PhD in sociology right now at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Um, This is the culmination of a longer path of my engagement in the social sciences in um, BC, where I'm from. I did an undergraduate degree at UBC in psychology, specializing in cognitive psychology, um, the study of creativity, actually. And I did a minor in sociology, and I ended up loving sociology a lot more than psychology. And so I applied to do my PhD in a sociology program in a completely um, different research orientation than what I had done during my undergrad. And so Here I am now in my sixth year of my PhD, writing my dissertation and slowly getting through that process. And here I am today. Great. Well, I hope the dissertation writing process has been good to you. I hope you've been enjoying your research. I find it really fascinating, and I know that our listeners here are going to find it very fascinating. Um, I think that the fact that you do interdisciplinary work and the fact that you're doing work that maybe might not seem social justice um, on first glance, but very much in my opinion is, um, will be very interesting for our listeners. So I'm just going to dive into asking you uh, the very first question. What's your research project about? What's the, how would you describe it um, if, if you had to give a pitch about it? My research looks at sociocultural predictors of adolescent sexual behavior in West Africa. Um, More specifically, what that means is I look at reasons why, for example, some adolescents decide to abstain to later ages to begin having sex um, and why some of them begin very early. And more specific to that, I look at three different elements that I find particularly fascinating or not well explored. The first one is religiosity. So what are the mechanisms through which religion has the capacity to delay sexual debut. Um, The second one I look at is uh, initiation rites, a coming of age practice and how this ushers people into adulthood and what this means in terms of um, sexual maturity and their decision to have sex or not. And the third sociocultural aspect I look at are actually emotional factors such as being in love. So how do uh, feelings of love and intimacy factor into the decision to have sex or not have sex in the context of uh, rural West Africa? Perfect. Thank you so much. So I just have some clarification questions here. If you could give us a little bit more meat about, um, you know, we're, we're both social scientists. And so uh, I, I think we take terms like sociocultural predictors uh, for granted. So what what do you think makes these three elements, this religiosity, initiation rights and emotional factors sociocultural? The things that make them sociocultural is, are the fact that these are different elements that are constructed um, by humans, for humans, and tend to drive or predict particular behavior. So, you know, religion gives us rules for how we should conduct ourselves, particularly in the domain of sexuality. But of course, it's not just the literal prescriptions that come from, you know, scripts like the Bible, but it's also the social norms that we create around these prescriptions. And of course, these social norms change depending on where you are. So when I talk about sociocultural factors, I'm talking about the things that humans collectively have decided to put together as um, rules or pathways that guide our decision-making processes. And in my case, it's in terms of how do we deal with sex or what sexual decisions do we make and how how do things like 
um, cultural practices such as initiation rites, religion, and also just emotional scripts, the emotional um, stories we tell ourselves about our relationships with other people. How do these guide our behaviors? Fantastic. That's so fascinating. Um, and so tell us a little bit more before I ask you about each of these cultural, sociocultural predictors. I'm really interested to know, so when you say sexual debut, does that have a particular con- uh, connotation in the African context or um, are you referring to sexual debut more generally? Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by sexual debut. Yeah, so basically I'm just meaning the first time you have sex. Okay. You know, or like that's that's the term that we use at least um, in my subdiscipline, sexual debut, um, sexual init- initiation, in you know in more normative frameworks or more morally imbued frameworks, we'd refer it to losing your virginity. But of course, um, that term is is morally loaded because I don't really think you can technically lose something like this, and we can get into that. But sexual debut broadly means the first time you have sex. Okay, great. Um, okay, so let's get into these sociocultural predictors. So let's start with the biggest, kind of most loaded one, which is religiosity, yes. right? So a lot of us, myself included, are very interested in this relationship between religiosity and sexuality, right? So first of all, when you say religiosity, um, are you also looking at religious belief um, or how are you measuring religiosity? So there's two different ways that, at least currently, in the um, discipline of any sort of religious study or studies that focus on religiosity and how it shapes human behavior, there's two facets of religiosity. One is extrinsic religiosity and the other one's intrinsic. Um, Extrinsic religiosity refers more to the behaviors or performances of religiosity. So how often do you attend church? Um, how many extracurricular activities are religious-based? Um, anything that shows to other people or is signaled to other people that you are embedded within some sort of religious community. Intrinsic religiosity, on the other hand, is the importance of religiosity to one's internal self or um, their personal behavior. So on a survey, we might ask a question like, on a scale of one to five, how important is your religion in shaping your everyday decisions? So this, um, so this uh, factor of religiosity looks more specifically at the internal experience of being religion as opposed to the external performance of religion, such as church attendance. Right. Okay. And so what are you finding in your research right now in terms of this first sociocultural predictor? How is religiosity affecting sexual debut? Well, it's very fascinating because across the board, we know that the higher you rate on religiosity scales, the more likely you're going to delay sex, right? So Someone who is intensely religious is going to have sex at later ages than um, people who rank a lot lower on religiosity, which makes complete sense. Right. And so is this both at the extrinsic and intrinsic level? Yes. I mean, generally speaking, we tend to use the two measures together, but they have different mechanisms. So when you're talking about extrinsic so uh, religiosity, it usually functions in the sense of group norms. So if you go to church a lot and you have a lot of extracurricular activities that are um, part of uh, your church subculture, you're more likely to be embedded within a network of people who also hold the same norms around sexuality. And of course, if you, for example, are part of the the Christian network, those norms around sexuality are going to be Um, spoken in the language of abstinence, waiting until marriage. Um, So extrinsic religiosity works through being connected to particular networks that have uh, restrictive, if you want to call it that, norms around sexual debut. Right. And I guess that's exactly what would make this a sociocultural predictor, right? Yes, exactly. Because these are... um, the social sanctioning that happens around sexuality 
and around um, and as it works through religion are actually through other people. But then on the other hand, you know, an intrinsic religiosity also has a way of shaping um, sexual behavior. So it's more so we could articulate this more so people making decisions to have sex or not have sex based on their perception that God will see or God will judge them or that they're being good followers of God. So they don't actually have to say anything or do anything um, that signals to any sort of group that um, they should or should not have sex. But it's more so if I have sex with this person, will God punish me or will I have to repent for some sort of sin? So both intrinsic and extrinsic religiosity have the capacity to shape sexual behavior just in through different mechanisms. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, basically in a nutshell, what you're telling me is that the higher the religiosity, the longer the delay in sexual debut. Yes, this is the broad pattern. It's been well validated um, across many settings. And of course, it's, it's very intuitive. You know, it's not a surprising idea. Um, and it's not surprising that this pattern holds universally. Although I think one caveat and one thing that we try to keep in mind when we're making policies around, you know, sexual education programs that have abstinence only components is that people who are highly religious, yes, they delay sex. And from an epidemiological perspective, so from a public health perspective, delaying sex is good because it mitigates the landscape of opportunities to, for example, have an unexpected pregnancy or contract an STI. But... (laughs) Full abstinence until marriage is rarely a reality for most people, particularly adolescents. So when we're talking about um, abstinence-only sexual education programs, the double-edged sword about religion is that, yes, it delays sex, but by the time adolescents eventually have sex, which they often do before marriage, before they're in some sort of like intensely monogamous union, is that they don't have the education that they need to protect themselves. So religious um, adolescents are less likely to have sex younger, but when they do, they're less likely to use condoms. They're less likely to be comfortable with them, know how to get them. They're stigmatized, particularly in um, some denominations which don't even condone contraceptive use, even within marriages. So um, that's the one caveat I want to say about the way that religiosity influences sexual decision making. It delays it, but it can also um, lead to some less protective behavior in the end. Okay, great. Uh, so I think for that one, we'll leave that and move on to the other two sociocultural predictors. And so tell me a little bit about these initiation rights. Is this something that you're that other people have looked at more broadly? Or is this when you're talking about initiation rights, is it specifically in the region that you're focusing on? And just to clarify, your work is in Ghana specifically, right? Yes, yes my work is in Ghana. Um, Initiation rights, they're a curious thing because the initiation rights are rites of passage that basically usher an individual from a state of childhood into a state of adulthood. So you pass through the ceremony and all of a sudden you are metaphysically transitioned into a a different person with a new status, new responsibilities, but also new privileges. And in sub-Saharan Africa, Initiation rites used to be quite ubiquitous. It used to be um, something that was practiced for the purpose of transitioning children to adulthood. But now we have different pathways to adulthood. We understand that sociologically, adulthood is attained after you've completed like the longer, slower path of finishing school, um, getting employment, uh, finding a partner, um, getting married and having a baby. And when these... Um, milestones are passed, that's when you become an adult instead of this over this relatively quicker transition between uh, a single ceremony. But of course, I should say the ceremony sometimes can last a full year because it requires a lot of training. And so initiation rites have since changed because Again, they've become sociologically less relevant for the transition to adulthood, but a lot of them have held on, particularly this one that I look at in Ghana, because they still um, serve the purpose 
of maintaining cultural identity and ethnic heritage, particularly in a world that is quickly modernizing, westernizing, and where these um, smaller cultures have this fear or anxiety of being subsumed within some sort of more global um, shared culture. Um, so the reason why a lot of these initiation rites continue to be practiced despite the fact that we don't consider an adolescent who just goes through this right to be sociologically an adult, um, they're hung on to for these particular reasons. And the right I look at in Ghana is particularly visible because most initiation rites in Ghana have all but disappeared. And so this one, um, you know, it's practiced by this ethnic group called the Krobo. And the Krobo are a pretty small ethnic group within Ghana. There's about 200 different ethnic groups in Ghana, and they are not that well represented among them, but this initiation rite brings them a lot of visibility, um, particularly because it's the only enduring initiation rite in Ghana. Right. And just to add a little bit of cultural relativism in here. So, you know, when you're talking about uh, initiation rites, can we conceive in a heterogeneous Western society, can we conceive of any existing initiation rites here? Yeah, the bar and bat mitzvah. Right. That would be the coming of age uh, ceremony that would be most visible that we can understand here. And this initiation right with the Krobo uh, population, uh, what is it called? Depot. Depot. Okay. So you look then at the effect of this depot ceremony on sexual debut. Yes, because in the past, um, girls used to be initiated around late adolescence and um, when we're talking about pre-colonial times, so before Europeans started traveling um, to start colonizing sub-Saharan Africa. And so it was a rite that girls would usually go through around late adolescence. And there's this very strict taboo that exists around the depot initiation rite, whereby if you have sex before the rite, you're going to be, the spirits and ancestors will catch you and you will be expelled from the Krobo community. You will have lost your identity, and it's basically a death sentence. And so the depot initiation rite had a very heavy hand in regulating adolescent sexual behavior. Um, you know, it was believed that very few girls would actually have sex before the rite, and so um, girls would abstain all the way until late adolescence and then they go through the rite and then they can have sex even if it's before marriage because marriage had different rules about sexuality um but now the age of the depot initiation initiation rate has decreased substantially um girls are on average getting initiated around a late age 11 and so the common perception across ghana is that krobo girls are far more sexually permissive or promiscuous because they still practice this initiation rite. But the problem is that girls at 11 years old, once they go through this rite, believe they still have the same permission to begin sexual debut. Yes, and so my work disentangles whether this is actually true. Do girls who pass through this rite, are they actually more likely to have sex at earlier ages than girls who don't initiate or girls in the same region from other ethnic groups? Um, or is it something else? Is this just in the imagination? Is this, um, is this statistically verified? And do girls themselves actually feel like they've gone through a metaphysical transition to adulthood with new permissions around sexuality once they pass through this rite? And what are you finding? What, what can you tell us about this? What are your results? So my quantitative data actually does indicate that girls who pass through depot initiation are, are at greater risk, quote unquote, if you want to conceptualize sexual debut in terms of risk, that they are at risk of um, having sex at earlier ages than their non-initiated counterparts. And this indeed was um, verified through my qualitative data, which is to say my in-depth interviews with the girls themselves do say like once I went through this initiation, right, I felt like an adult. I felt like I was free before the initiation. I felt I couldn't associate with boys. I was terrified of associating with them. If someone tried to propose love to me, I'd make them go away very quickly. But 
after that, I feel like I'm happy. I don't have to be scared about becoming pregnant. And I think the main thing here that needs to be taken into account is that after a girl initiates, she can make more demands from her household in the event that she gets pregnant. So in Ghana, adolescents don't use condoms that much. And there's this common narrative on the ground that pregnancy and particularly single teen motherhood, especially in this very rural region I live in, is inevitable. So long story short, if you associate with boys, it's inevitable that sex is going to happen. And if you have sex, it's inevitable that you're going to get pregnant. And if you get pregnant, it's inevitable that you're going to end up as a single teen mom. And these narratives aren't just on an imagination level. Like there are a lot of single um, pregnant or new mothers who are, who are still teenagers who have no um, support from the male partners because obviously any boy can uh, reject paternity and in fact in my interviews with boys a lot of them did admit to being to rejecting the paternity of the child they knew that was theirs and so the initial passing through depot means that if a girl becomes pregnant which inevitably tends to happen among adolescents because of the low condom use so long as she has passed through depot she can make demands from her guardians or her parents to financially support her. If she got pregnant before the right, um, it brings such a curse or shame and stigma to the parents who care more about the ceremony than the girls themselves that she would be removed from her household and sent to a different village, different town, different community to live with some distant relative where she's her schooling is going to stop and she's not going to get the same kind of support. So when we're talking about the transition through to adulthood through depot it's not that the girls all of a sudden think that they're adults and they can do what they want but the landscape of risk and opportunity changes fundamentally after they pass through the right in terms of um, what kind of support they're going to get when they become pregnant so two follow-up questions that I have for that um the first is that it's really interesting that you're talking about this heavy hand of depot from the onset until now, and this heavy hand still persists, and it so fundamentally shapes uh, not only the societal expectations, but also these feelings of agency and demands that these young girls have after having passed through depot. And so I'm wondering how something like depot then compares to, let's say, marriage, right, which is another kind of you know, well-ingrained initiation, right? So is depot almost more important than marriage in this sense? Or is it something that uh, compares equally? Or would you even compare them? In terms of agency, you mean? And the agency it confers upon girls in terms of their decision-making? So in, in both the agentive sense and the societal sense, right? So, you know, um, to compare to marriage directly, when people get married, this this kind of phenomenon that you're also explaining with Depot that, well, now you kind of have uh, carte blanche to, uh, you know, live your life, if, if you will, without any judgment or any shame on your family, right? So that's the societal part. And then also that if you're married, you now have the right to demand things from your significant other or your partner. I'm wondering how heavily that compares to the significance of depot are those things that are comparable or is one more uh, stronger than the other so let's say if a young girl gets married before doing depot is marriage weighed more heavily than depot would be that's a really interesting question I haven't thought about that in depth but I would say that depot confers a different kind of agency because confers an agency that allows a girl to make demands of her household in terms of her well-being after she initiates but it's not the agency that initiated girls have terrifies the community because they see depot as being a license they actually put it this way they say it's like giving her a driver's license to do whatever she wants and so in some ways, it does grant her individual agency, but I would imagine that in the context of marriage, that agency is more intimately intertwined with another person, aka her spouse. And so I would say the kind of agency is different because all of a sudden, once she goes through depot, she has a lot of sexual agency, in her mind at least. And by technical standards, by technical quote unquote 
traditional standards, she does. Because back in the day, girls could have sex before marriage so long as they passed through depot. And in many cases, it was actually encouraged, particularly if her father didn't have any sons, then she could conceive and those kids would belong to her father's household. Anyways, um, I almost would think of depot as being granting girls more agency than marriage in itself. And of course, it depends on the context of marriage, um, which is rapidly changing across sub-Saharan Africa. So in the past, people would select... Um, partners based on what they're more like kin-based selection efforts so people would marry people who um, parents would want their kids to marry these people were chosen by parents by grandparents to unite different families so it was a very pragmatic form of marriage increasingly um, younger cohorts are selecting partners based on more individual considerations such as, do I feel like I'm in love with this person? Do I feel intimate connection? And kin, on the other hand, family, have a much further decreased role in this decision-making process. So marriage in itself and the process of getting marriage has become more agentic with time. And so um, I do see parallels between the kinds of agency that transitioning into adulthood via depot or transitioning to another form of adulthood through marriage does give um, girls similar amounts of agency or we can see that process happening but just in different ways but of course again in marriage your agency as a woman in sub-saharan africa is still it's still tethered to the person you choose um, and their expectations for what the marriage looks like. So there are still obviously some constraints, and there's obviously still a lot of constraints for girls after they've passed through depot. You know, shame is definitely still an element of being an initiated girl. They're considered to be promiscuous. They're considered to be, you know, rogue. Um, so despite the fact that they do have these technical capabilities to do what they want sexually, on a whole other level, they're still looked down upon, which is ironic because it's actually obligatory for them to go through it. And oftentimes the girls don't want to go through it themselves. It's the parental demand or the grandparents' higher order influence, making sure that the girls go through the right. Interesting. And, and so that's actually what the other question I was going to ask you is. So on the one hand, I hear this as being a right that's expected of you. On the other hand, it seems that it's something that's also sought after by the girls, but you're saying it's not. The girls don't want to do the depot themselves. It depends. So I think at a base level, this is something that grandparents and guardians want them to do to preserve cultural heritage. They still see the symbolic importance of participating in the right. Girls themselves don't necessarily, and particularly since there's this antagonism between the practice of traditional um, customs such as depot and what we would call modern religious systems such as Islam and, and Christianity. Um, Christianity in particular, well probably Islam as well, but the Islamic members of the community have less to say about depot than the, the Christians do. But people who are profoundly Christian and belong to particular denominations despise depot because they see it as worshiping a shrine, worshiping ancestral spirits. And within Christian doctrine, it's sinful to worship another god beyond the god that is offered through Christianity. And so there's these competing discourses on the ground whereby... Depot is considered by many as absolutely necessary. You're not a crowbo unless you go through it. But on the other hand, it's sinful to go through it. And the common, this all kind of comes to um, the best way to demonstrate how antagonistic these two forces are is that the common narrative is that the churches always say, don't put your girls through depot. It's sinful. We don't do that. We're beyond that. We are modern Ghanaians. We do modern religion. These are things of the past. But even the pastors will sneak their girls away to villages outside of their own and have them initiated. So the same people who are voting or preaching within their congregations to not do this are still secretly doing it um, underground because they can't envision their girls not passing through it because it, they believe that it 
thwarts their ability to marriage. A girl who is not passed through depot is not a Kuroba woman and therefore she's dirty, she's unclean, and she's unfit to marry. Um, so girls themselves, because they're coming of age in an era where modern Christianity has a heavier hand in their daily life, their daily ideologies, a lot of them actually don't want to go through what they have learned to be a sinful ceremony. So one of the reasons why they actually initiate girls at earlier ages in the past is because it's easier to convince an 11-year-old to just go through the ceremony, just get it done. You might not understand it, but it's what we do. It's a practice of our forefathers versus an 18-year-old who has already gone through a much more intensive socialization process through her school, which is likely religious, and through her church, which, by the way, Sub-Saharan Africa is arguably the most religious place on earth. You know, people go to church four days a week. Um, wow. Oh, it's part of... <laughs> I was woken up by church songs frequently during my field work. <laughs> um, but, Lovely. Yeah, it was nice. But they, you know, it's so ingrained in them to be devout Christians that by the time you get to 18, you're not going to want to go through this, right? Because you've learned it to be sinful. So that's another reason why they initiate the girls younger. So the irony is that a lot of girls don't really care about the right or don't revere the right in the same ways that um, adults do. But nevertheless, they see that passing through depot grants them particular permissions that are appealing to them because in sub-Saharan Africa girls often use romantic relationships romantic sexual relationships as a pragmatic means to secure resources so for example if you have a boyfriend he's going to take you to the market and buy you a nice dress that your parents couldn't afford or if you're in a more even economically precarious situation it could be for him to help you pay for food for your family so girls see depot like despite the fact that they might not have internalized the heritage part of it or how important it is because they're just modern adolescents um they nevertheless see that there's a pragmatic outcome of going through this right so a lot of girls don't want to go through it because they see it as being sinful but then a lot of girls are also like okay put me through it (laughs) hurry up because like I really want to start having boyfriends so a lot of them actually like prompt their parents into being like okay can we do it this year (laughs) ah yeah okay (laughs) so fascinating and you know just to kind of segue into your next sociocultural predictor I hear you saying within these initiation rights there's so many emotional factors that are embedded right so I hear uh pride I hear shame I hear um you know uh love and so if you could tell us a little bit about this third sociocultural predictor which is the emotional factors that that predict uh, uh sexual debut and how uh that would be great sure I think the best way for me to get into this is to talk about how I even stumbled across this research question. Like, why do I care about romantic love in terms of sub-Saharan Africa? And I was looking, I was looking at this survey data and looking at attitudes towards premarital sex. And rhetorically speaking, adolescents in sub-Saharan Africa, and particularly where I work and where my data comes from, adolescents across the board do not agree with premarital sex. They will always verbally say sex before marriage is wrong, right? Because it's a very Christian place and these are their morals and these are their values. But of course, practically speaking, this rarely happens. Very few adolescents in this region actually abstain until marriage. Um, I was looking at a bunch of these questions from the survey that kind of tap into attitudes towards premarital sex. And one of the questions asked, okay, is premarital sex okay if two people are intending to get married? Most people say no. Is premarital sex okay in this context? What about this context? And across the board, everyone's like, no, 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 no. Premarital sex is wrong. We don't do it. Well, they do do it, but they don't believe in it. Uh, There's a difference. And there's this one question that said, is premarital sex okay if two people are in love? And all of a sudden, you see this change in response patterns where a sizable um, proportion, about 30% of the adolescents, all of a sudden are like, yes, it's okay if two people are in love. Ah. Yeah, and so this was, you know, for me being kind of new to this field was a little bit surprising to me. So I went in and did my field work being like, what do they mean by love? You know, and how do they use love as an entry point 
to partake in what is widely considered an immoral behavior. You know, why is it romantic love? And so that's how I got into this question. And I found it to be, when I started doing my literature review, so I started doing my research on love in Africa, it's just so curious that very little has been done because when we think about Africa and we think about sexual and reproductive health challenges, we really think about sex in terms of risk. And certainly I articulate sex in terms of risk, not because I think sex inherently is risky or that adolescents shouldn't be having it, you know, on a personal level. I think that's not the way I would frame it. But nevertheless, from an epidemiological perspective, from a public health perspective, the longer we can delay sex, the better. And the less sex that adolescents are having, the better, because we know that they're not using condoms in this region. And so I was finding that everything that's, not everything, but most of what's written about sexual relationships among adolescents doesn't include this emotional factor that sometimes adolescents have sex because they're in love, right? And like emotional factors can motivate sex. It's not just about like social inequality, you know, that girls don't have access to resources and like boys do. And so they enter relationships so they can have their medical bills paid or to get their nails done so that they can fit in with their friends. Like these are the common narratives through which we understand sex in terms of resource deprivation or um, like structural factors that put people at risk of having sex. And so, and so I started to look at emotional factors in this sense. And so interesting, right, that I think in the North American context, at least, we look at this in the opposite way, right, where we look at love as being the primary motivator for sex, right, that adolescents or adults engage in sexual behavior because they are driven by their emotions. And that transactional element is seen as being secondary, right? Whereas like now there's more of a movement toward, um, you know, a lot of women, especially talking about transactional elements of sex and and kind of deeming uh, this aspect as being agentive. But generally, that's something that's more frowned upon and the love or emotional factors that that uh, add to sex um, or that that predict sex in the North American context are seen as being mostly primary. And I think that's that point is one of the main underlying themes of this particular question that I don't know if I'll specifically address within my dissertation per se, but you know, when I tell people that I study sexual and reproductive health issues in sub-Saharan Africa, they're, they're always like, oh, it's so different over there. Or like, wow, you have your work cut out for you. But what I truly find is that there's more similarities than differences between adolescents in sub-Saharan Africa and adolescents here, or even young adults or even adults in general in terms of their sexual decision-making and romantic decision-making. It's just that You know, if you're having sex in sub-Saharan Africa and you get pregnant, the outcomes for you are going to be fundamentally different than if you're a Canadian woman who got pregnant during adolescence. We know we have a lot of different safety nets for that. But when it comes to things like romantic love, you know, we think about Western relationships as being hinged on this ideal of romantic love and that this is the morally appropriate way of finding partners and maintaining relationships but really pragmatic concerns always factor into marriage patterns in terms of like your partner's economic ability or even their ethnic group like you know we have people who will date outside their ethnic group but at the end of the day it's easier to date someone who is in the same ethnic group as you so those pragmatic concerns are introduced in romantic relationships in western contexts Which also just goes back to this notion of how much, uh, you know, this notion of romantic love is uh, westernized through colonial kind of rhetorics, right? Because we think of romance as belonging firmly in the Western world because Walt Disney said so, right? And so it's so interesting hearing the way that, uh, you know, it could be actually eliminated or not even thought of in an entire body of research because of these colonial kind of pre preconceived notions of what love is and where geographically it belongs. Absolutely. And like the literature really, when we talk about the way that romantic love has like, 
pervaded around the world, we attribute it in terms of modernization. So as societies modernize, they stop selecting marriage partners based on like kin-based preferences and like uniting clans and all this stuff. And it becomes about romantic love. But truth be told, romantic love was always in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, this idea that it's like this Western ideal and um, now people are enlightened and have more agency to choose who they want. Like, true, maybe Kin had a heavier hand in selecting marriage partners, but, you know, it doesn't mean that these were loveless marriages. And not to mention, selecting partners based solely on romantic considerations leads to very unstable marriages right? Like the instability of marriage in the 20th century. A lot of it has to do with the fact that we base people or choose people based on like our immediate emotions in terms of like how they make us feel as opposed to pragmatic concerns. Like, you know, is this the kind of person, does this person have the kind of lifestyle or career that is going to be good for me in the long term right or like can I really get along with this person's family for the rest of my life you know like whereas if you married someone whose family resembles closer to yours you know marriage is a lot easier and so it's just the whole romantic love thing the idea that it was devoid in sub-saharan Africa before and now it's there and and we do see like elements of this coming with colonialism you know valentine's day is big in Ghana you know like (laughs) really it's like almost bigger there now and like it's because it has become a marker of modernity if you're a person who goes and buys valentine's day cards and goes and gets flowers for your lover like you are a modern man right and so like these ideals of romantic love do pervade sub-saharan africa in very colonialist ways and capitalist ones, right? So yes. just the ways that it, this, this synergistic effect of colonial and capitalist logics are intertwined in this equation, right? So tell us in terms of your research. So are you telling us then that romantic love um, as articulated by your participants, and we'll get into the methods in one second, but um, you know, do you think then that romantic love leads to sexual debut? Yes. In fact, when someone says I'm in love with this boy or I'm in love with this girl, that is basically code. It's not even code. It's like well understood that that means they're having sex. So the two sex and love are intimately intertwined and they kind of mean the same thing in sub-Saharan Africa or at least in Ghana among my participants. And how prevalent is this? Is this something that you're finding um, the majority of your participants are reporting or... In a Western context, we have hookup culture where it's like, I had sex with this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forgot his name. <laughs> and this is, this, is, this is a regular weekend. This is an idle weekend, right? But there, it's like you don't begin having sex until someone proposes love to you. So the relationships might start as quickly as they do in a Western context or like college campuses kind of thing. But sex and love are one and the same. And... You know, and so I would say that by the time the adolescents reach 18 or 19, most of them have had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, which is to say most of them have reported being in love with someone and having sex with them. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for telling us uh, all about this research. I'm sure that just like I am, listeners are also kind of dying to know how you did this um, and what conversations you're contributing to and finally how this research relates to social justice. So I'd like to kind of cover these three questions before we wrap up. Um, So let's start with your methodologies, right? So methodology is something that is thrown out a lot in the social sciences. Social scientists are uh, very, 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 very set on methodologies. Um, It's probably the most important component of any research project. But I think that once research is kind of disseminated to the general public, people don't really talk about methodologies as much, right? So tell us how you did this research what data are you drawing from I know that you're a mixed method researcher but if you could explain that to our listeners that would be great yeah so basically mixed method research sounds at face value what it is it's you use different kind of methods to validate your findings to make sure that they're both speaking the same outcome or same truth and so I use two different kinds of methods one that is most commonly um 
accessed by even like a non-academic survey data. So it's asking people um, things like on a scale of one to five, how do you feel about this? Or do you never feel this sometimes, always, etc. And so I was lucky enough to have met a colleague um, who works in Ghana who did a longitudinal project, which is to say he surveyed about 1,500 adolescents at three time points, so over their life course. So some of them started at age 12, and so we had data from them at age 12, age 14, age 16, right? And we had adolescents at all different ages to capture this sort of life course. And this data is like gold standard <laughs> um, in our field because it's really expensive to collect data, never mind to collect data in sub-Saharan Africa, which requires a lot of research infrastructure, including hiring local help, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then collecting at three different time periods, super expensive. Therefore, longitudinal data is pretty rare, but it's also so important because you're collecting data on this person across their life course? Did their attitudes change? Did they have sex in between these waves of data? And how do the different um, questions we ask them relate to their decision to have sex, for example? So I use this really rich longitudinal data that has been collected by someone else that is, it's at my disposal and there's so many different directions of questions I can ask from it. And then for me, I think quantitative data, survey data, that gives us statistics and numbers and probabilities is really useful. But it's also good to, they don't get into the nuance of a question. So I could ask, um, do you, on a scale of one to five, how much do you agree that l premarital sex is bad? And people might be like four or five, but it doesn't get into the why or how of um, this association so we can say oh religious people are more likely to answer this question this way but we don't know why they do and we don't know how or under what circumstances they might change their opinion or what are the greater powers may be that are influencing them to answer the question that way and so that necessitates qualitative work so in-depth interviewing which I think we can liken to if anyone's ever been to therapy it's basically like <laughs> like being probed in depth like in that in that sense like oh you think premarital sex is wrong okay explain that why do you, why do you think that under what circumstances and so i went to the field and collected additional data from a different sample so a different group of about 100 individuals i think i got about 50 adolescents um no 60 i think we interviewed 20 of their parents and then we interviewed a bunch of local stakeholders, which is to say um, the chief, um, the queen mother, who is like the, the female political leader of the town I worked in, teachers, um, ministry workers, so people in health and uh, um, social work, education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to talk about these issues that I'm interested in exploring. And how long were these interviews? Oh, some of them, it depends. You know, some people are very verbose, and so you keep these going. I'd say on average, the interviews are about an hour, but obviously when I start, started interviewing people like opinion leaders who had a lot of opinions on the things that are going on, like the interviews could go on for like two and a half hours. But And then obviously some people are a lot shorter. But in general, I'd say the average is about one-hour interviews. Right. And one of the things that we take for granted – when thinking about methodologies is, you know, the process that it took to actually be able to collect these interviews, right? So you said you did 60 uh, in-depth interviews with adolescents and then um, other leaders and political figures and, and um, kind of uh, these um, qualifying interviews as well. So how many did you do in total? 99. So 99 interviews, right? So <laughs> yeah. I think I think we take for granted um, as people who read research and haven't actually done qualitative research that 99 interviews is extremely difficult to acquire, right? So um, did you? how did you manage to get these 99 interviews? Did you have any stumbling blocks along the way or um, anything uh, particularly difficult that you want to recall? I consider myself to be very lucky, fortunate, privileged, whatever word you want to choose, because my research or my data collecting process when it came to the qualitative interviews was so seamless compared to how fieldwork typically unfolds in the social sciences. So 
I managed to get all my 99 interviews in six months. I only had to be in the field for two of these months. Um, the reason why my research went so seamlessly is because I piggybacked off of an existing research project. Um, McGill has this uh, very long-standing nutritional program that's happening in that particular area. And so I already had access to a pool of um, locals who had been well-trained in research and data collection who I could select from to help me recruit, you know, to find people to even interview, um, you know, identify the local stakeholders and then do the interviews themselves. A lot of all the interviews with the adolescents, these women I hired did all of them and they transcribed the interviews. <laughs> what people don't know when it comes to the data collection method is that transcription takes forever. Like how many hours does it take for one hour of interview, do you think, to transcribe an interview? Um, I would say at least double. Um, oh, at least. It just depends too. It depends on where you are when you're doing the interview, you know, how noisy it is. Um, if the person's a low talker. Yeah, accents. <laughs> accents, yeah. exactly. So it just, it really depends. Um, but it, it takes a really, really long time. I think it's really interesting that you had locals helping you there, right? Yeah. Because I, I think there's something to be said about doing global research, but having the interviews be conducted by locals, right? Because I think people are more willing to open open up to people with whom they identify. Yeah. Um, and so I really like that methodological component of your research that you had, you know, locals kind of divulging this information and, and talking to their communities one-on-one, uh, -on -one, right? Well, it's absolutely necessary, I think, just because, you know, of the power dynamics that are inherently part of being the researcher versus researched, right? And I'm a white woman, and I'm coming from what they believe to be well it is it's a very wealthy country um so the light in which they see me can fundamentally shape the responses they're going to give me so not only does it lead to less valid data but also you know you have to be sensitive you're asking people very intrusive questions about their sexuality and things that are very stigmatized and you know i feel like not only does it lend itself to better data if they feel like they can talk more candidly with people who they can relate to, but also like the research process, the interview process for them should reap benefits just on a very singular level in the terms of like, now you get to talk about something with somebody that you never really get to talk about with other people. So let's make this a comfortable experience. Let's make this like a cathartic experience where you can just talk with full confidentiality with someone you trust um, and ultimately and this is a nice process that or a nice outcome that happens from qualitative research is that participants usually really enjoy the interview itself and I feel like had I inserted myself into the interview instead of finding a local woman um, to do it for me that the interview process would have been uncomfortable for a lot of these these adolescents to talk about things like sexuality so um it was good for me like it works for me in very instrumental outcomes in terms of having other people doing all these interviews simultaneously but I also think it's just more protective emotionally for the person whose data you're basically taking from absolutely absolutely um so okay so you did so just to recap so you drew on the survey data that had been collected where it, that encompasses 1,500 surveys, and it's longitudinal, so uh, with the same group of people over the course of their life three times. Yes. And that's your quantitative data. Yes. And then your qualitative interview, so you have 99 qualitative interviews, 60 of which are with adolescents who have presumably, uh, you know, gone through their sexual debut. Not necessarily. No, I so I took the age range of 15 to 18 for my qualitative interviews. So there would be a lot who haven't had sex and a lot who have. And I tried to purposely sample um, to have both, right? I didn't want to just talk to everybody who have had sex because I also want to talk to the people who are waiting, who are delaying. And why are you delaying? So I had I had people who did have had sex and people who have not. 
Interesting. Okay, great. And then the remaining were with um, kind of political figures, leaders, community, elders, uh, people in those kinds of positions. Exactly. All right. Great. Thank you. And so um, let's talk just very briefly about the kinds of conversations. I think we've kind of encapsulated that in our conversation so far, but maybe we could just, uh, if you could touch briefly on what kind of conversations within your research domain you're contributing to. A lot of the conversations I can insert myself into and seamlessly are public health conversations. How do we delay sexual debut? Or how do we encourage condom use? Or how can we make sure that pregnancy isn't an immediate stumbling block for a girl's social or economic trajectory later in her life. Um, So the conversations I contribute to in that realm usually think about sex in terms of risk or usually, you know, or have like kind of these more biomedical understandings of human behavior because we have this one outcome, which is to like reduce disease, reduce pregnancy. Um, So, a lot of the conversations I insert myself into are very health-oriented, public health-oriented, therefore epidemiology, etc. But then, you know, as someone who is a white and traveling to sub-Saharan Africa to study essentially sexuality, I also have to encounter a lot of critical theories. So theories that almost take a more meta perspective of like analyzing the research or researching the research that's being done. So more so looking at like, what are we doing here? What has been done in the past in terms of people from wealthier countries traveling to poorer countries to analyze, look at data and draw conclusions from our Western perspective? So like I said, sometimes these two different conversations, the biomedical or health or epidemiological one, is actually in stark contrast to what are really post-colonial Um, critical studies that in on the very end of the spectrum think that biomedical science has no place in sub-saharan africa and it's time uh, for western people to stop going and observing african sexual behavior and articulating it in terms of risk because this is part of a longer pattern of white people going to sub-saharan africa and observing their behavior and in the past it was done under the guise of um religion you know these people are so morally backwards but now we use a biomedical framework to be like well their sexual behaviors are are risky or they're bad for health you know we don't use moral um narratives as saying these are sinful behaviors but we still have a way of moralizing through them through the objective quote unquote uh science uh, or practice of science and so I'm constantly in this kind of existential crisis because I, I move between these two things because we don't want adolescents to have sexually um, transmitted infections. We don't want girls to have unwanted pregnancies. And I mean unwanted pregnancies. Some adolescent girls want to get pregnant. And we want girls, if they do get pregnant, that they can finish school. So there are these practical outcomes that we do want that I think are value neutral that even the girls themselves on the ground would want. But then on the other hand, we have to always keep ourselves in check in terms of our methods and our assumptions, even the questions we ask. And so I insert myself into all different kinds of conversations that are sometimes difficult to um, bring into one particular conversation at one time. Perfect. Great. And so that segues into our last question and, you know, which is um, more about what your desired outcomes for this research are. And so, um, The backbone of my work is to find ways that, A, if girls don't want to have sex, they don't have sex. If they want to have sex, they can have sex. Um, They have the opportunity to demand a condom if that's what they want to do. If they want protected sex, that they have the ability to do that, that there aren't these like social mechanisms in place that make them too shy to or make them feel shamed to. Or, um, you know, of course, in more extreme positions, forced to have sex without a condom but also in the event that they do have condomless sex that they have the same opportunities as boys you know that it doesn't disproportionately thwart their educational dreams and what they want to do in their lives and if what they want to do in their lives is become mothers and like this brings them a lot of status and honor even if they have a baby at 16 that's great if that's what they want that's what they shall have So that's what I mean when I say I don't want to see like particular statistics like being reduced in terms of like how common pregnancy is, but more so in terms of 
can a girl live out the kind of pathway that she personally feels is the pathway that she wants in life and how can my research contribute to a girl being able to exercise her agency in light of all these structural barriers that are in place for her absolutely right um Thank you so much, Maddie, for coming uh, here and sharing these wonderful insights with us. Uh, You know, I feel like I could continue to have this conversation with you. And indeed, we have had a lot of these (laughs) conversations. Um, But I definitely feel like, uh, you know, my listeners here would agree with me in saying that your research is fantastic. Um, It's very, very interesting. And it's something that I could listen to and continue to talk about for a very long time. Um, so um, I want to thank you so much for joining me. And um, please do let me know as you publish about this research, as your work comes out, I'm sure that listeners would also be interested um, in hearing about your upcoming projects as well. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, that just about wraps up our show for today. We'd like to once again thank you for listening to the InSearch podcast If you enjoyed the show, please like, comment, and subscribe to our show in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. You can expect a new episode of the In Search podcast every month in and around the 15th. Stay tuned for next month where we talk about sports and development.